The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. This relentless drive to accumulation is something with no intelligence. It's completely blind. I wonder if the non-promise of any kind of livable life for all of us might have something in common. It channels a lot of action into things that seem to have a short-term payoff, but are destructive of the host that sustains the parasite. The job of those of us who read and write books and teach classes is at least to get people to look sideways a bit more. We live in, shall we say, interesting times. It's now more than three decades after the Berlin Wall fell and the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama famously declared the end of history. According to Fukuyama and a lot of other people besides, we'd all dabbled with alternative ways of organising the economy, but we'd finally reached the end game: Capitalism, the most rational, effective, enlightened form of society. But as economic crises, care crises and ecological crises all unfold around us, as social unrest grows and as living standards plummet, even the most enthusiastic cheerleaders for the free market are having to admit that history is back in a big way. More and more people are wondering if this capitalism business is all it's cracked up to be. Recent polls show that the majority of young adults across the UK and the US don't have a favourable view of it. But this system is so large, so unwieldy, so world-engulfing, it's sometimes hard to pin down exactly what we're talking about when we talk about capitalism. I sat down with academics Gargi Bhattacharya and Nancy Fraser to take a critical look at the waters we're swimming in. We talked about accounts of capitalism that focus not just on wage workers, but on migrants, sharecroppers, housewives, forced labourers, climate refugees, everyone. Gargi Bhattacharya is a professor of sociology at the Institute for Connected Communities at the University of East London. She's the author of books including Crisis, Austerity in Everyday Life, Traffic, Dangerous Brown Men and Rethinking Racial Capitalism. Nancy Fraser is the Henry and Louise A. Loeb Professor of Philosophy and Politics at the New School for Social Research. Her titles include Scales of Justice, Reimagining Political Space in a Globalising World, Fortunes of Feminism, From State-Managed Capitalism to Neoliberal Crisis, and her latest title, Cannibal Capitalism, published by Verso Books. We talked about exploitation, debt, and the struggle for change. Gargi, Nancy, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Eleanor. Great to be with you. Yes, I'm very excited. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So, Nancy, I'd love to kick off by asking you, okay, listen, I've been hearing a lot about this whole capitalism business, right? It's crossing my radar quite a lot these days. And I'm curious as to how you would categorize, how you would describe this kind of orthodox style of understanding capitalism that we maybe are coming across quite a lot uh, these days that your work engages with. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. We are hear- hearing a lot about this capitalism business, and it's it's about time. We we need to be talking about it because it's kind of destroying the planet and, and making our, our lives uh, un- unlivable. Um, the problem is that within the, the left uh, critique of capitalism has been dominated by forms of traditional Marxist thinking, which 
you know, may not exactly entirely be what Marx had in mind. But anyway, this received form of Marxism tends to reduce capitalism to the economy, uh, right? To, to you know, uh, commodity production in for-profit firms by free workers who receive wages and by all the forms of exchange and rent-seeking and uh, predatory loans and so on. This is all very important stuff, and I think we do absolutely need to pay attention to it. And so I'm not sympathetic to people who want to talk only about culture. Nevertheless, um, it seems to me that to think that capitalism is simply an economy is wrong. It's much too narrow. It doesn't allow us to understand how capitalism is imbricated with all sorts of troubles that we have, which are, you know, not sort of economic in any narrow sense, like planetary planetary incineration, the crisis of social reproduction and care, the rise of authoritarianism, the hollowing out of democracy, racial and imperial oppression, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all sort of strands of trouble that, in my view, can be traced to capitalism, but only if we understand capitalism in the right way, in an expanded way. And that's what my recent work has been about. I've tried to um, develop the idea that a capitalist economy is only one part of capitalist society. And what we need to understand is how this capitalist society structures things so that the economy is, in a sense, licensed to devour the other parts of the society that are, are, are the supports of the economy, right? You don't have uh, an economy without families, without communities that, that produce and nurture and sustain the human beings who act within the economy. You don't have an economy without public powers that you know, provide repressive forces, legal orders, money supply, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, without, I would argue, without a a global color line that constitutes, right, large populations, not as free, exploited wage workers in factories, but as targets of expropriation whose lands and lives and, and labor can just simply be taken. So these are all necessary background supports for the economy. And we need a, a large view of capitalism as a, what I call an institutionalized societal order that shows the relation between the economy and these background conditions. And last point, in my view, that's a relation of cannibalization in which the economy is authorized to eat away at and devour these necessary background conditions. And since those are also the conditions of our lives, it's, it's a pretty mm-hmm. terrible situation. I'd love to just stay with that metaphor, that image of the cannibal, you know, the book takes its name from it, of course, cannibal capitalism. And I'm really intrigued by the difference that crops up for me, at least, between the cannibal and the parasite, right? We've seen parasites in nature that are at least clever enough to sustain their hosts, right? To to not leech away too much of the organism that it feeds off of to cause any kind of long-term problems, right? There's something of a kind of total system within that. 
you're not describing that. You're describing something a little bit different. So I'd love to know a bit more about why cannibalism, the metaphor that drew you to it as something that is, uh, helps us understand what on earth is going on. Well, first of all, I love this idea, Eleanor, about the parasite that is smart enough to keep the host, you know, go- going well enough so that it can keep feeding. And and I suppose if, if capitalism uh, is a parasite, it's a stupid parasite <laughs> that, that doesn't have the intelligence <laughs> to realize <laughs> that it's destroying its own host, uh, namely us. So I think that the, the problem is you know, that this kind of relentless, unlimited drive to accumulation, which is the center of the system, is is something with no intelligence. It's completely blind and it sort of controls so many actors in and, and limits and constrains them in what they do that it, it basically channels or uh, uh, a lot of uh, action into things that seem to have a short-term payoff at the level of, you know, just plain money or whatever, but are destructive of the entire organism. I'm following your metaphor of the organism, the host that sustains uh, the parasite. So that's why I call it um, a cannibal, because I think it's eating its own conditions of possibility. I mean, part of the problem is is what the it is here. Mm. I mean, you ask why I chose that. I have to confess it's partly because I think it sounds great. Cannibal capitalism. Yeah, I mean, for sure. <laughs> so yeah, like sell books and so on. Okay. Uh, but not only, no. There are sort of several thoughts here. And the the most sort of, the first thing that occurs to you when you hear uh, uh, this phrase cannibal is, you know, people eating other people, humans eating humans. And of course, that's the sort of, got this whole racial imperial subtext in in which right european colonial powers are basically uh, you know invading and subjugating africans and calling them cannibals it's so ironic because it's these colonial or conquering powers that are actually the ones who are devouring the the peoples that they invade and subjugate but i think that there are other more let's say abstract meanings of cannibalism that are interesting. I mean, right, you can see the point. Let's turn the tables. Who's the real cannibal here? Mm. It's not those uh, those uh, Africans who were, you know, on the receiving end of uh, of this process. But the, the, the more abstract meaning is the idea that you, uh, I, I started, you know, researching dictionaries to look at all of it. And, and the one idea is that you have a, a cannibalization when you have one enterprise or facility that is systematically strip mining, you could say, others in order to right enlarge itself and thereby destroying the others. So, you know, we, we talk about, I don't know, um, well, who knows, one firm cannibalizing another that it, that it buys in a merger, acquisitions and mergers. So... This seems to me to be a useful way of thinking about that relation between the the economic zone of the capitalist society and the other, quote unquote, enterprises and facilities that are not in the official economy, but that are necessary to support it. And then the last idea uh, that I came across that I thought was useful was 
this kind of astronomical idea that a celestial object cannibal, we talk about cannibal stars and planets, cannibalizes another celestial object when it, it draws it into its orbit and then basically fuses with it or something like that. And that struck me as interesting for thinking about um, the, the world system and the whole core periphery issue and how, right, uh, peoples and territories that are outside the official core monetized zones, relatively speaking, are, you know, intellectually drawn into its snares, even when they're not like directly commodified, but are nevertheless, uh, right, deeply well treated as, as fodder, let's say, or processes that are. I think these are all different meanings of uh, cannibalization. And they, to me, I was looking for a, a metaphor that would, you know, a catchy metaphor that would condense in, into a, a neat image this process that I'm trying to describe about that the, the key, key to me is the perverse relationship, the contradictory relationship between the system's official economy, which has been you know, more or less well theorized by Marxists for a while, between that and these other background conditions, so that we could see how it is that ecological crisis, climate crisis, is a problem of capitalism mm. and not of humanity, as the Anthropocene thinkers say how it is that feminist concerns about care work and social reproduction and so on are problems of capitalism and, and not just, you know, some personal life, the family or some, some other thing. And, and the same for racial imperial oppression and for the ways in which uh, political democracy is severely truncated and decimated and deformed. I think that all of these things can be traced to the problem of capitalism, if we understand capitalism as this kind of system that for structural reasons, non-accidental reasons, is primed to cannibalize its right the, the economy's background conditions. That's the idea. Love to pick up on that kind of structural and non-accidental problem, right? And go over to you, Gargi, because there's this two different types of claims when we are talking about observing how racism as a kind of very broad, kind of baggy category, interacts with the development of capitalism. And one is a kind of historical claim that, you know, it just so happens that capitalism evolved in such and such a way with such and such forces and racism played a role. Great, we have a historical account. There's the other kind of uh, perhaps stronger claim that uh, capitalism in its essence requires things such as racism, these processes of, of, of difference making, in order to sustain itself. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that and you know how your work grapples with that distinction? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I mean you probably realise I'm a bit, I'm always a bit nervous about the claim that it absolutely needs racism because I think I prefer the difference mm -hmm. making. But, you know, capital teaches us that it can make all kinds of difference between us, between people you thought were your neighbours yesterday. You know, a disaster can come through your village and suddenly the need to eat will transform itself through the market to make new people your enemies. New people will come over the borders running and suddenly you'll have a new fantasy of who your racialized other is. So I think 
you know, my work tries to remain open to races and endlessly remade technique. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you don't know who's in those categories. But I am, I think, pretty much convinced that the capitalism that we have known and have been able to chart has always lived and remade itself through the remaking of difference. And, and that is arbitrary kinds of difference. And that the technique, the way we name that technique as a social technique is of racialization, because racialization is the arbitrary allocation of identity and status between people. That's not about what you do. It's not even about you know, other really quite nebulous things about the making of babies or reproduction. It's just an arbitrary differentiation between humans. Mm. And it can take different forms of visibility or um, worship or cultural forms. But what matters is the arbitrary making of a hierarchy and a division. And I think it's very hard to look at what we know about the really quite variegated history of capitalism in many spaces and not have that kind of stick in your eye again and again as a thing that keeps happening. So, yes, I would say constitutive, not incidental, but also I think endlessly tricky to spot because I think some of the take-up of the term racial capitalism, which my kids really laugh about and they think every time someone says it, they think they're ribbing me personally. I say, (laughs) no, no, they're saying it of their own accord, actually. But some of the take-up of the terms of racial capitalism can imply that we know now how it works. We know how the ducks line up. We know how the people are allocated, how are distributed. And it isn't about a knowability. You can know going backwards, but to know the techniques of racial capitalism is not to be able to predict how that falls going forward. You know, our, our job is to try and, try and use that analytic framework to see where the horror is falling next, who is being allowed to die next, who the destruction will come to next before us. And I think I just say that as a kind of warning because I can see why people are desperate for um, a solid answer, even if it's a mm-hmm. solid answer about despair. But that's just, it's not good enough. You know, that, so the terms of race are about saying it will always remake itself. How can you kind of try and spot something that is a bit like something you knew, but yet not quite the same in every instance? So what is that process doing, that process of differentiation doing in its sort of many-headed hydra kinds of forms? Because, I mean, as you as you sort of indicate in your book, it takes a lot of resources, right? There's a lot of cash and disciplinary energy thrown at making and maintaining and reinventing these kinds of differences, which is probably a big red alarm saying this is very important. So what is that kind of the substance of that importance in creating those uh, kind of background conditions that Nancy was mentioning? So a huge question, I know. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, yeah, anything I summarise sounds like too no. trite, but I think it does follow on from what Nancy was saying, that capital remakes the world in a way that Instead of the distribution and remaking of resources being a prop to life, all life becomes a prop to the remaking and distribution of resources. That's the turning over so that instead of um, there being life and something called economic arrangements are underneath that helping it, instead everything is subsumed to as if the economy is somehow the world. You know, that, and uh, as Nancy's already said, that we have quite a good 
language to understand how that happens and the consequences of that for our world, but not much or a, a less developed language to understand the ways in which all the bits of life that are subjugated to something called the formal economy are always imbricated in it and um, what that means for our collective survival. Firstly, I always try and say, like, I think racial capitalism is a kind of question term. It's not a, a final answer term. It's a way of saying, if we start to think that capitalism remakes itself always by squatting in existing differences, making new differences, dispersing populations rather than unifying them, instead of creating us as mass grave diggers of capital, instead using its techniques of reproduction to divide us from each other in ways that it's hard for us to see each other in our lives or to see our hope and destinies in each other. How might we see that in each instance of capitalist reproduction? So as new things happen, or what, in what ways are some people split off from being imaginable in the lives of others? In what ways are the ways in which we're offered a journey to remake our lives and save our children and feed our loved ones? How is that organised in a way that someone else falls out of the equation because every time that I become a worker, who must become a non-worker because of that? Every time I get something, who else's invisibilised activity is made into not work for me to get that thing? And it's more about having a different mesh of seeing every instance where we're made as capitalist subjects. When we talk about those categories of, of the worker and the non-worker as kind of always related, getting back to that sort of story we were talking about at the beginning of, you know, the standard account of, you know, capitalism is something that happens pretty much, you know, in the in the factory and, you know, have a, a labourer who sells their labour for a wage in a way that's kind of free, but not entirely free, but they don't have any way of reproducing themselves other than going to work and having a paycheck that they then use to buy food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I'm boring everyone by reinventing the wheel. But when we kind of expand this account, as both of you are doing, a lot of other subjects hove into view, right? The the sharecropper, the, the chattel slave, the housewife, all these kind of different subjects also involved in remaking capitalism. And um, Nancy, you have this distinction that sort of... Uh, very much helps us to understand okay what these processes of difference making might be doing like what their function might be pointing towards and it's a difference between expropriation and exploitation could you explain that a bit for us what you what you mean by that difference yeah and i think i'd like to sort of start by reacting with some thoughts that are were sparked by what gargi just said and, and that I think can link up to this. So we may be working on different levels. I think that's uh, what's going on here. So I am really trying to look at a small number of sort of deep structural features or uh, what I think are deep structural features of a capitalist society, what I argue are. And so for my purposes, I would say that I'm interested not in the fact that capitalism is always engaged in difference making and that difference can take many, many forms, which is true, absolutely. But for the structural level, I'm interested in a couple of very specific differences that are enduring, that have, even if who is put on in what category shifts, 
there's something durable about gender difference and about racial difference. And they are deeply consequential in, in their durability. So the fact that who is, is, is counted, you know, as a person of color and, or as an expropriable subject or whatever will shift is true. But for me, I want to show why these two kinds of difference are so in, enduring and so consequential and, and to, to hypothesize that, that capitalism needs these two differences. I do think there's something structural about these two differences. And I think it's because of, in the case of, of gender, it's because of the institutional separation of production from reproduction, which in other societies have not been institutionally separated in that way. So that gender difference, if we want to use that word, is, um, is deeply implanted and, and is massively elaborated and becomes a, a, a site and stake of social struggle because it's so consequential. And then what you asked about, Eleanor, the distinction between expropriation and exploitation seems to me to sort of be a structural feature of the system and one that is elaborated in terms of a color line that therefore makes racial difference a deep enduring, even as its content changes. So I endorse everything that you said, Gargi. I'm not at all uh, criticizing it. And all of your caveats and um, qualifications are very important when we try to analyze the social world and how people see each other and, and so on and so forth. But I want somehow, and I don't know exactly how, to sort of bring your level into communication with this other level. And that, that's not easy because your level is subtle and messy and complex and mine is like brutally simple. <laughs> uh, and, but I think that both are necessary and the question of how they connect. So just, just to wrap up very quickly, what I mean by, I mean, I'm just taking the Marxian definition of exploitation as a process through which, right, uh, surplus value is extracted within the, 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 the capitalist firm at the point of production from propertyless people who are doubly free in Marxist sense, meaning not bound to any master, but dispossessed of land tools of, of all the means of production that they might use to organize their own work, to supply their own subsistence. So as you said, Eleanor, have no uh, other option but to sell this capacity to work, this labor power. That's exploitation. And the idea, at least in theory, is that exploited workers are supposed to receive a wage that is sufficient to cover their living costs. In fact, you know, that's not always the case. They have to fight pretty hard sometimes to get that. But that's the idea. They're juridically free. So there's a political status of freedom. And they receive the cost of reproduction in the form of a wage. Expropriation is the absence of those two, I hate to use the word privilege, but relative privileges. <laughs> uh, it's not at all a privileged condition to be exploited, not at all. But 
there's a, nevertheless an important difference between those who lack the actionable rights, the uh, ability to call on state protection or the means of self-defense, whose, whose assets, whose, whose land, whose animals, whose bodies can simply be seized and who don't go through the, the contract and, and, and don't have the juridical freedom. And also often, much more often than in the case of exploited workers, do not receive even a subsistence living, but have to somehow cobble together, the, the, you know, what, whatever they need elsewhere. That's the distinction between expropriation and exploitation. It's a, it's a, and and it corresponds historically over the 500 years of, of capitalism with the global color line, which granted, you know how exactly that line is drawn and who's on which side of it and so on uh, varies. But I think this is a strong enough association to think that that this division of, of the propertyless people who might all be called the working class, the global working class, who probably should all be called the global, but their division into the exploitable and the expropriable is, uh, in, to my mind, whether I would go so far as to say that the actual causal genesis of, of race, and I, whatever, but uh, it's anyway deeply, deeply implicated with the reproduction of, uh, of race and, and with the process of racialization. So to me, I'm, 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 I'm trying to do a kind of theorizing that is, um, as I say, somehow brutally simplifying but I think necessary, <laughs> at least to give us a big picture uh, to orient us as we then go to explore the, uh, all the, the forms of subtle complexity that, that Gargi is interested in. And I, can I just um, add as a question, one last point. I want to ask Gargi, would you distinguish between racial capitalism and racializing capitalism? I recently heard a talk when I had never I had never heard anyone sort of say these are two different kinds of theories before. But I heard a talk not too long ago in, in which someone tried to say that and, and, and put me on the side of racializing. And I don't know who else on the side of racial. And I'm just curious, does that ring a bell to you? Yeah, I think that's. I fear that's a bit of a UK thing, maybe not only a UK thing. But yeah, my sense is that um, the serious boys of the British left can go as far as racialising capitalism, but not racial capitalism. Uh. So they're trying to be kind to you if they said you were racialising capitalism. That means you're not totally lost. But, um, <laughs> but I, I think it is something about um, what kind of centrality or primacy you might give to um, an analysis of race. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking that this probably shows my Britishness, that I'm much more comfortable to say that the big structural stories are that capital will always arbitrarily divide production and social reproduction and that will divide populations into those who are exploitable and those who are expropriable with some variations in between. And that we might think that those th those two formations are all too familiar to us as varieties of gendering and varieties of racialization. But I think politically, there's something important for us to denaturalize that association and to say, look, the structural thing are those two processes, 
and the making of it as common sense for our lives and and every life we can remember is part of the trick, isn't it, as well? Because both those terms, they're kind of, they're, they're malleable and tricky terms that wreck our lives in different ways. Fair enough. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for cluing me in about this racial, racializing thing. Yeah, yeah. Be very, very careful with those boys. That is all I can say. <laughs> I mean, I, I, can I just say on that, forgetting the boys and what they're uh, up to. Just laying them to one side for the moment. <laughs> yeah. I am um, myself, I think, more comfortable with racializing uh, capitalism because, and I think you say this in your book, if I'm not mistaken, there's a, a way in which when you talk about racial capitalism, then the, the question arises, well, is there a non-racial capitalism? And I would say no. And then we have to start multiplying the adjectives. It's also a sexist or a, a, I wouldn't, a patriarchal capitalism or a, an ecologically devastating, ca- I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say it racializes, it, it genders, it you know, destroys nature. I like the verb forms here. And and I like to just keep the, well, for me, like, I'll, I'll just give it the one word cannibal, what encompasses all of this. I mean, I mean, I partly use racial capitalism in a recognition and homage to Cedric Robinson and Neville Alexander and a particular tradition which often, well, I'd say often now is everywhere, but for a long time was not, I think, very properly acknowledged and built into the broader discourses of the left. Agreed. Gargi, I'm wondering yeah, a little bit more about what you make of, of, of that distinction between expropriation and exploitation. As you, know, as, uh, you outline in your book, Nancy, there is kind of overlap between these two categories uh, in of different eras of capitalism. And, and something that crops up for me when reading about this distinction is this kind of shadow of abandonment as well uh, that kind of goes alongside expropriation that that touches on a lot of things in many traditions of thinking about racial capitalism, things like Ashil Mbembe's work on necropolitics, theories of, of the wasteland, basically people for whom this is going to be such a crude formulation of it, but who are no longer being expropriated from but who are simply abandoned they are kind of no longer in any kind of use category for capitalism and I'm just kind of wondering how we might figure that into our our account of of this this race making if we indeed do. Well I think that's partly what the true horror of our moment is isn't it and that's how I hear Nancy's take up of the term cannibal capitalism so that of course capital has always eaten itself but just enough eat us, but just to enough extent that some something survives, enough of the machine survives, some people are abandoned by the wayside, but the idea of accumulation is not that it will collapse. But the limit of climate crisis really um, reveals the absolute limit of all of it to us, doesn't it? And, and escalates in horrifyingly immediate ways what it means to be a, an abandoned population, literally abandoned to a fate not made by you, but by some kind of masses of capital elsewhere that we see very openly, both in policy and in economic circles, varieties of talk, which almost explicitly, now I think actually explicitly, talk about who will not survive the coming deluge or disaster. 
So that's that's a shift. That's a shift, I think, in the last 10 years from the World Bank saying, oh, look, this is a crisis for all of us, to the European garden, which must defend itself from the brutes outside who are coming from the jungle. So I think that absolute abandonment to death is now built in as explicitly the survival mechanism that capital imagines for itself and that it's spoke you know that its mouthpieces say well this don't don't worry there'll be business as usual for some of us and with the idea that we will all understand who those some of us are the some of us is deeply racialized geographically quite predictable and linked to an idea of a continuation but a huge escalation of the idea that the genocide of large parts of humanity is acceptable if the the real machine of the global economy can continue. But I also think that the divide between who is exploitable and who is expropriable perhaps is passing before our eyes, that the terms of standard work, the need for an exploitable workforce seems to be dispersing, contracting, fragmenting, that some of the ways in which we've been able to think of a racialized divide between the exploitable and the expropriable has really somewhere in our imagination implied an idea that somewhere there's a functioning capitalist economy, perhaps we hope even one regulated by some broadly social democratic or at least democratic impulses that there's some kind of way, somewhere where the business of capital it's deadly, but in slow motion. And that alongside that elsewhere, there are all the places in which the deadliness of capital is absolute carnage immediately. Mm. I'm not sure that the spaces that we've longed for of near privilege of exploitation, as Nancy says, some kind of privilege, but that even those semi-regulated spaces, that not that I just think they're in flux. I think there's something up in the air about all of that and that and I don't really know what to do with that apart from to say it to you both as a thing <laughs> for us to think about so yeah let's let's think about it let's think, <laughs> let's, um, think about like how you know at the moment and, and there's there's a lot of um thinking around how the potential merging of the distinctions between who's expropriated from and uh who's exploitable is linked in some ways to financialized capitalism or like this zone this phase of capitalism in which we currently find ourselves which is one of crisis it's it's struggling to kind of produce the same levels of profit certainly in um like what i'm referring to with the biggest scare quotes ever as developed nations and it's all getting a little bit messy potentially nancy can you shed any light on this yeah um i think there's sort of two two points i want to make the, the sort of um, necro side of capitalism is as old as the origin. It's, it's basically like a locust form that, you know, you know, swarms to, to one place, eats up, you know, let's say the Peruvian silver mines or whatever, and then it just leaves a devastation when, it, when, it, when there's nothing left for it there, and then the swarm moves to some someplace else, so this this process of of expropriation and and I I think we should use I was interested in in the whole set of words you used Eleanor abandonment 
and so on, and waste. I think we should use waste as a verb. Mm. This is a wasting yes. disease, so to speak. It, uh, these populations are not waste. They have been wasted. That would be one way to talk about it. So I don't see that, that this is new. It's a constant, as Gargi said before, it's a constant way of pulling in you know, populations, territories that are of some use, whether as expropriable or, or as exploitable at one moment, expelling others and, and, and so on. But the, the, the logic, I think, of the, the two streams of expropriation and exploitation remains, even though the relations between them change. Now, finally, to get at long last to the real question you're raising, Eleanor, I definitely think that something uh, interesting is, is going on now, which made me sort of pose a question as to whether whether some kind of non-racialized capitalism could be possible. Because the, but, but this is not a desirable thing exactly. <laughs> yes. so I don't think we're talking about progress here. No, the idea is that populations that, frankly, through their own concerted and difficult social struggles, managed to get some labor rights, managed to command you know, a decent wage and safe working conditions and so on and so forth, and who were, in a sense, the system allowed, compromised with them in such a way that they were allowed to sort of leave behind expropriation and become purely exploited, we could say. Those populations are finding themselves drawn back into some what I think of as a hybrid or mixed status. So they're still juridically free and they work in factories and so on and so forth, not in, not in sweatshops or in, they're not in favelas or, and so on. That They're, you know, in, in Detroit or Pittsburgh or someplace or, I don't know, in England, Manchester, where would you say? Glasgow, I don't know. <laughs> There's some rust-belted place where they're plunged into kind of low-wage service work. In the United States, these are places of um, massive opioid addiction, gun violence, suicide. I mean, these are devast These are wasted in another way. These are the formerly exploited who've been wasted. So these are populations that even if they haven't gone, been degraded quite to the point that I just described, are very much struggling. Am I going to be able to maintain and defend a status that, even if it's not you know, the greatest thing in the world, was better than what they saw happening to people of color? Or are they going to be dragged down to that level? And you know, this is not necessarily a, um, a question that people answer in, a, um, in an anti-racist way, let's say. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Au contraire. <laughs> so that, 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 that landscape is blurring for significant populations. And meanwhile, we've got the relocation of manufacturing to what used to be the periphery or the semi-periphery. And so we have the rise of something that looks on its face a lot like industrial capitalism used to look. And with labor struggles that... Um, are, you know, again, these are people who are struggling to become merely exploited. But all of that is overlaid with the whole 
problem of debt, extractivism through debt, through IMF strictures and so on and so forth. So those people, even if they are exploited at work, are actually being expropriated by these other means too. So they're also hybrids. They're they're post-colonial citizens whose states are uh, unable really to defend them from the from global finance from global mega corporation even if the rulers there wanted to which not all of them do in any case so uh, I, this is a landscape in which the previous idea that there are the exploited here and the expropriated over there and we can see you know just by looking at them but their physiognomy who is who it's all very neat it's all very clear that's out the window. Everything is is blurred now in this way. And so it made me think that whether I still believe that capitalism requires both exploitation and expropriation, but I began to think, well, but does it require that that be organized by way of two very neatly and sharply divided sets of people. One are the only expropriated and the others are only exploited. And then I began to think maybe we get, maybe what non-racial capitalism would mean would be that everybody is equal opportunity exploited and right. expropriated. And um, that's why I say this is not a desirable <laughs> thing. It's a, a, a quasi-uniformization at a low level. Of course, we know that it's not really uniformization, that even today there are, if, it, if it's a continuum rather than a sharp dichotomy, we know who's at the, the real low end of the continuum and where are the, the, the small shrinking mass of, of the merely exploited and who's in between and so on and so forth. So I don't know. I think that it, it makes sense from an analytical perspective to say that that expropriation, exploitation distinction is fundamental to capitalism. I don't think it can work if everybody is paid the full cost of their reproduction and free to move and and to you know uh, and, and protected with labor rights and so on. I don't think it works, mm. especially if you say that we're not going to offload the costs onto nature or something. You, you can't protect everybody and everything at once, in my opinion, with capitalism. But it might be possible to have a capitalism that works in a a less dichotomous way. And then the question is, what happens to race as a lived phenomenon? What happens to people's sense of themselves and, and what group they belong in and so on? And, you know, the paradox is that at one level, this looks like we're undermining the structural basis of sharp racial divisions. But as I was just sort of implying, you know, we're we're also generating a very toxic mix of ressentiment. And, you know, you know, to have this condition of having something taken away from you that you thought was at the very least gave you a psychological wage, as Du Bois would say, as well as a bit of a material wage. You know, this is uh, not something that people, you know, take lightly. And uh, so I think we're seeing with this, these shifts, the increasing, um, you know, 
animosities along racial lines and racialized animosities, let's say. And also, as you say, in all kinds of eruptions, because one thing that in as much as there were small protections for the wages of whiteness, both the material and, as you say, the psychological ones, much of what we've seen in terms of the restructuring of the economies of the global north and the rolling back of state provision is precisely the erosion of those small protections of what it is. What what is it to be white if all of that is gone? You know, I only have my, if you've only got your skin left, it's a pretty poor bargain. You need all this other stuff for the wages of whiteness to work. But I also wonder, and this is the thing that, that I've been trying to write about. So it's also the, the thing you're asking about is the thing I wrote about quite a long time ago. The thing that I've just written is about <laughs> to come out, but I'm still not decided about, is that different variegation. And I wonder if, you know, the reason why we're interested in exploitation, when we, when we come in, as a species trying to understand the violence of capital against us. We're interested in exploitation because the machinery of exploitation suggests to us that capital can't remake itself without pulling more and more of us into its ambit through the machinery of exploitation. And we want to know about that because as long as it's the machinery of exploitation, we are being stolen from, but we're also becoming agents of change in that moment of theft that that's the promise that's also you know that's also why um all the old blokes of the global left are so angry because if you and i am also in despair about it because once you take that away how am i going to build the revolution what am i going to build it on but um but part of what we're seeing as nancy's already said is that much less clear divide between exploitation and expropriation and perhaps a whole range of lives in which there is a wage but that's a small amount of how life is reproduced there's a whole range of other activities there's maybe a number of small wages some of which are not acknowledged as wages different processes of expropriation including in the um, realm of social reproduction and of leisure that um the landscape in which economic life happens is instead of massifying so that we so we can see each other and become some kind of class agent, becomes more and more dispersed and stretched out so that we're all... As Chris Moore said at this thing when he came to Britain the other week, that soon one in four of us will be working for Amazon and Amazon's offshoot. That tells us... so that So instead of thinking forward... Think of a big logistical network which has manufacturing, but has manufacturing made smaller into workshop-style manufacturing where you're moving things around all the time that you might... And um, you get stuff out of people partly by employing them for a little bit, partly for taking their leisure for a little bit, partly for making them doing a bit of homework for a little bit. And lots of the world's population is doing these three things and maybe other things together. Now, all of that, I think, still invites the question of racial capitalism. Okay, how is that working? How are we getting anchored against each other? What divisions can be heralded up to make sure that we don't still see each other as well as the material divisions between us and the spaces between us? But it's a different set of questions. It isn't the sets of questions of the idea that, you know, that we can kind of map the spaces of the economy proper and the props that we know where the lines are. And and that's what I mean about the the sneaky unpredictability of capitalist reproduction. Mm. 
you know, the, the devil knows how to build himself again before we've even spotted him. And our job is to try and find a way to see him together. I'm interested in uh, the role of debt in your account of like how the devil rebuilds himself, because, you know, alongside, you know, the basic transaction of the wage, it seems to play an extremely weighty part in both the processes that we're pointing out, you know, exploitation and expropriation. You talk to that, Gargi. Yes, gosh, well, can I? Not very well. Again, all these things I know are the right question, but I'm not, don't have the, I think this is an indication of being in a moment of real difficult crisis, but I'm really coming up against the limits of my own education. And I feel pleased that I can at least see the limits, but it's also hugely frustrating. (laughs) So if you feel the world is kind of knowable, then the educational training you have kind of, it can, you can go through the certain kinds of motions, you have the techniques, but as the world kind of goes like that in front of you, ah, then it's like, oh, I'm trying to learn things on the hoof that I don't quite know enough. But I do think there's something about debt, both at the mass level that Nancy's already said, the ways in which the global economy is still um, structured around the indebtedness of whole populations across the world, even without their participation, so that they are kind of stuck in the you know international financial models of just stealing from them legally, mm. and that that's what the regulation of the global economy is. And alongside that, the embedding of debt into each individual life as the wage recedes doesn't disappear but becomes not a thing that you can organise your whole life around, that you just add the wage in as your kind of basket of emergency activities to keep yourself and your loved ones alive. And debt absolutely builds in there. And as a technique of social pacification, it's hugely effective, isn't it? You promise, I've been trying to write that you promise your future social reproduction, that it's, that's what indebtedness does. He says, I I will keep myself and my other economically active loved ones alive into the future to pay this off to you. I promise you our, our future love for each other. I promise you our future staying alive because I have nothing else to give. It's even more than having nothing to sell but your labour. You're selling the promise of your future. And more and more of the globe's population in North and South, really, this week's groceries relies on that. Mm. And once again, I'm not sure what we do with that, but it feels to me like quite an important insight for how we imagine a global class politics. And and you can see some of the organising that's been happening in very different places about indebtedness is a kind of spark recognition about that, isn't it? That this, we might not be a massified labour force, but we are a massified indebted population. Let us try to start to see what that means in terms of our collective interest and activity. And when we start to take a bit of a survey of what we might have in our toolbox to do something about it. Uh, I'm curious as to how this multiplication of our understanding of what capitalism is and how it functions, uh, you know, equips us with. And I'm curious, Nancy, about your concept of the border struggle kind of goes alongside or maybe is part of a broader class struggle. I don't know how you would nest one inside the other, perhaps, but can you talk about what you mean by a border struggle? Yeah. Um, well, so the the picture that I've I've sort of drawn uh, as to sort of what capitalism is as not an economy but an institutionalized social order 
that organizes the relation of the economy to its background conditions, I've sort of stressed that it's an internally differentiated system, which is built on some divisions like production versus reproduction, exploitation versus expropriation, markets versus states, human society versus non-human nature. These are sort of uh, realms that are um, institutionally separated, although they're also joined and connected, uh, sometimes in subterranean ways and you know, otherwise in, in a more open way. So I think that because of this cannibal mm. problem, um, that there is enormous pressure at the seams that separate and connect these various internal, internally differentiated parts of the system. And this means that what we used to think about class struggle was never adequate, actually, and is certainly not adequate now, because it, it, it locates that sort of internal to one realm, that realm of production or economy. But by definition, a capitalist society always have, and I think always will, engorge the massive accumulation of value within the economic realm by extracting wealth from these other realms. And therefore, it's always putting pressure on these other realms. And it's always precipitating conflict, struggle, contestation at the seams, at the joints. We, we have a, ma a massive amount of what I would call class struggle is now happening in and around the reproduction production border as well as, so in countries at least like the United States, I'm not sure about the UK, much of even, even sort of formal union and labor struggle is in the realm of social reproduction. It's teachers, it's hospital workers, it's nurses. And some of these struggles are very, very interesting because they're not only about uh, wages and hours, the sort of traditional stuff of what we used to think of as class struggle, but they're also about the sort of public-facing qualitative point of their work. So nurses demanding limits on the number of patients they're uh, forced to care for. They can't do their job under this neoliberalized managed care you know, kind of organization, teachers demanding caps on class size and so on. So the, these are people are saying that so what 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 the what the actual content of social reproduction is is being wasted again, we could say, by uh, this these uh, these austerity uh, techniques and so on. And you know, the, what what Gargi is saying about this sort of bricolage of, you know, you can't get a, a wage, you can't get subsistence from one source. Well, I think this was largely almost always true because it was, we know that in countries with stable states and, and reasonable tax capacities, right, public services were always an important part of what we call the social wage. The wage was more than just the, the paycheck from the, from the boss. And then, and you know, in working classes all over the world, there have been other streams of, of necessary income. 
whether it's monetized and non-monetized, mm-hmm. taking in borders, doing laundry for a little money, growing some vegetables in your backyard for subsistence, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Well, so it was always a little bit exceptional to think that there were people who got <laughs> this, all their, uh, all their living from the, this one source. And as we were just saying, though that's uh, much less the case today with the, you know, the assault basically on living standards by this very predatory form of neoliberal capitalism. And, and that includes the debt you were just talking about. And I completely agree with what Gargi said about that what we're selling uh, now is basically future time, right? Uh, from, from Marx's point of view, labor is always about time and, and how what you're selling and so on. But now the time horizon is uh, extended out further into the future. It's not just you can have my time for these 40 hours for this week, but you know you can have what I do for the next if you're a student in student debt for the next God knows how many decades. And one interesting phenomenon in the United States is that parents are co-signing loans for their college-age kids and then having to defer their retirement to pay them off. So people are not retiring when they had planned to. This whole business of time is really crucial and very important and interesting. So... You know, what does all this mean now for a class struggle? The point is class struggle is taking many different forms. To me, you know, um, struggles for uh, reproductive freedom and uh, including abortion access and so on, those are labor struggles. If you take seriously that reproduction is labor, which I do, these are labor struggles. Me Too is a labor struggle. It's about whether we have a workplace free of illegitimate power, assault, and, and, uh, and so on. And struggles over, over contaminated water in Jackson, Mississippi, or, or Flint, Michigan, you know, these are our class struggles, which are about disinvestment by the state in communities of color, defund the police, prison abolition, all of this is tied to the huge, uh, you know, um, uh, assault on um, on living standards of, uh, of people of color. Someone like Ruth Wilson Gilmore has done a beautiful job of explaining all this about the California prison system and how it's tied to the restructuring of labor markets and, and the organization of um, resources and tax revenues and so on. So um, what this means is class struggle, on my view, is everywhere. But it is very fragmented and dispersed. We don't any longer have this picture of who the iconic worker is, where the iconic class struggle is, and who we should all fall behind and follow on the path to revolution. That picture is gone. It was always a bit problematic in the first place, but you know, it had the advantage, you could say, of strategically <laughs> of, of, of bringing some clarity uh, and now we have to bring that clarity. We have to create it in some other way, not around this iconic uh, place of struggle. And we have to connect the dots. I don't have a, um, a specific proposal here, but part of what I was trying to do in cannibal capitalism and in my subsequent work 
is to connect some dots. This is maybe too intellectual to, to have the kind of practical political consequences that we need, but it's at least saying you're struggling here and rightly so uh, about some horrible uh, condition that the system is putting you in. Uh, they are struggling there over something that looked quite different, but is also horrible and that the system has put them in. Let's see how, what they not immediately visible connections are. And, you know, it, it's one in the same animal that is cannibalizing. That's to be the important thing. And nobody is, no one sort of situation and, and no one set of struggles arising from one situation is powerful enough to defeat this system on by itself. So we, we have to connect the dots. And the one starting idea is, is just a greater understanding of what the animal is and, and how it works. Another, I mean, you know, I, I always think back to Bolshevism. What is our equivalent of peace, land, and bread? We need like, not like a million things, but a few small words <laughs> that stand for big ideas. What, 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 this is, I think, what you need to order. Because it, it, look, even in communist uh, uh, movements, it was always about articulating workers and peasants or for Gramsci, the North and the South. Uh, I mean, it was always about putting together a counter-hegemonic block mm. of different forces. We're not the first to face this problem, but you could say we face it in a more extreme and radical way. And so we definitely need uh, a few simple ideas that speak beyond very siloed situations. I'm curious as well for yourself, Gargi, what's the role of the, the, the nation or the state perhaps in articulating these, these sort of promises or these particular possibilities? Because, you know, we have this massive democratic deficit and, you know, I am guilty of still kind of riding off the fumes of what we were talking about when Corbynism was a thing, uh, which is uh, a terrifyingly long time ago now, maybe four years. But, you know, that was, you know, nationalise this, make the state to take over that. But uh, with both of your accounts, you know, troubles the idea of, you know, what the nation state is for, what the nation state is doing, and the, the possibilities that can be realised, you know, under that form. Absolutely. And, and I don't at all disagree with what Nancy is saying. I think that we are living through, part of the flux we're living through is a massive eruption of very diverse moments of class struggle in all kinds of familiar and unfamiliar ways. But pe people are fighting for their lives everywhere you look, as humans have always done, and in the desperate ways that we must right now. And, and I didn't mean to suggest that I didn't feel that people were not in in struggle, which I would all, uh, yes, I think they're all struggles against capital because who is stealing our, our life force, mm. as you say. But as you've said, I also think that people are struggling for survival without anyone having a narrative of how we might ultimately defeat this beast. And that might always be in times of, of paradigm shift, how it's like, that, you know, we kick as hard as we can, but really I'm trying to live till tomorrow. I do, do think that part of What's heartening about the take up, some of the take-ups of the analysis of racial capitalism or 
in a parallel way, the ways that Nancy has talked about cannibal capitalism, are the ways in which people of very different kinds are using that language as a way of just slightly lifting the blinkers. So to be able to look sideways a little bit, which I do think is a, a particular political moment. It's not yet the moment where we understand our, we become the, the mass agent, but it, it must be a it's a necessary step in any global politics. And part of what I think lifting the blinkers and looking sideways a little bit means is that the terms of survival in one nation, which have been the social democratic promises that actually much of the left of different kinds, including the labour movement left and the electoral left, for understandable reasons, has been formed by, they're not credible they're not credible. They're not. Um, they're not ethically justifiable, and they don't even look like they will work. And that's the main thing, isn't it? It's not even about right and wrong. Can I believe this long enough? Swallow my incredulity long enough? No, almost no one younger can. That's what we're seeing, aren't we? Whatever we think about the death of the Sanders Project or the Corbyn Project, which of course were interim projects, they were absolutely generational. And they're about a generational shift of like, if the state can give me the terms of life, I will have a a temporary dance with the state. But that is the minimum. Mm. The things that were said as like unbelievably overambitious is that just the minimum terms of life, can we get that through this political machinery, then everything else we can talk about. And what was shown is that even that, even the minute that somewhere to live, a chance that um, I might be able to plan far enough ahead that I could form a relationship and have loved ones and small people to look after, all of that pulled away from younger people across industrialised nations. Well, if you can't even offer me that, you can go stuff your (laughs) national social democratic (laughs) model because it's not giving me anything, is it? Nothing at all. It's saying, can you be gig fodder till you fall? And understandably, everyone under 40 says, do you know what? I think maybe not. And I'm starting to learn that as other people who don't look anything like me, whose lives are nothing like me, are also being asked to gig till they fall in different circumstances. And other people whose um, access to clean water is being trampled over once again, as it always has been. And that people who have already been washed into the sea. And I wonder if the non-promise of any kind of livable life for all of us might have something in common. So I think we're at that moment, aren't we? Which is both exciting and terrifying. But I do think the job of those of us who read and write books and teach classes is at least to just get people to look sideways a bit more so that the next step can be made in the street, can be made elsewhere. And it is on that moment of excitement and terror that I think we will have to leave it because that is sadly all we have time for. Nancy, Gargi, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you. That was the Verso podcast with Nancy Fraser and Gargi Bhattacharya. We talked about cannibal capitalism, climate crisis, and the role of race in the global economy. We're taking a break for the summer, but we'll be back soon in the autumn. And we have some bonus content lined up to keep your feeds fed and watered. And in the meanwhile, I'd love to ask you for a little favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, please let the algorithm know by giving us a top rating or a review. It really helps us out. So thank you. And as ever, thank you for listening. Make it a great summer and I'll see you on the other side. 
You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.